Well, again, good morning. It's great to see everybody. Uh, great to worship together this morning. Uh, if I've not had the chance to meet you, uh, my name is David Cumbie, and I'm the lead pastor uh, here at Apostles. And on behalf of the Apostles family, if you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. I just want to say welcome. Um, this morning, we are um, going to be looking at uh, a passage in the Gospel of Luke, the passage I just read about, this story that many of us know well called the Good Samaritans. I just want to encourage you, uh, if you want to grab a Bible and open up to Luke chapter 10, we're going to be looking at that together. Um, we're kind of between uh, sermon series. We finished up the Apostles' Creed last week. We're going to be getting into uh, a series on uh, our vision and our mission here at Apostles starting September 12th. But this week and next week, um, we'll be looking uh, at some different things. And so this morning, I want us to look at this passage on the Good Samaritan. Um, in part, in light of, of just, I think, everything that's been going on uh, in the world around us. Um, you know, if you've... Uh, you know, watched any news at all over the last two weeks. Um, it's just been heartbreaking uh, to see some of the things going on around our world, uh, Afghanistan, that situation in particular, uh, those suffering in the aftermath of Haiti. Uh, there continue to be wildfires uh, out west. Uh, even today, um, our friends, our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ in Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, preparing for an another hurricane. Uh, and our hearts just break um, when we see all this going on in the world. And I think we feel moved to do something, right? We want, we want to respond. How can we help? What can we do? Um, and that's good and right. And, and actually, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about some specific things that we uh, can maybe do as a, a church family in response to some of the things going on around us. Um, but, but before we get into that and praying through that and praying for folks, I, I wanted to look at this passage in Luke chapter 10 together um, just because of this reality. You know, when we enter into these kinds of situations around us, um, it quickly gets complicated, right? When we, when we enter into places where there's desperate need and there's crisis and there's brokenness and there's just all these things that I just listed off, it, it gets complicated very quickly. You get really messy, and it can be really costly. And, and the further you press in to these type situations, answers can, can tend to become less and less clear. We think, oh, we just do this, and it'll help. And, and actually, the more we press in, the more we begin to see just how complicated things are. Questions come up. Questions come up, and we tend... Um, to, to get a little bit nervous or to maybe even pause or step back when we encounter this reality. We can only do so much. These problems are huge. They seem overwhelming to us if we really begin to press in beyond a superficial level. Now, we serve a big God. Praise God. Nothing's impossible for him. So we, we, we don't shrink back in fear. We have confidence in Christ because of what the gospel means and what the kingdom brings. But these things can feel overwhelming nonetheless. And so as we enter into helping others as followers of Jesus, I think one of the things that's really important for us is to consider the why behind the what. The why we would respond and the way we respond um, is incredibly important. It's incredibly important to understand the why behind our compassion. What motivates us, in other words, to respond with compassion in a hurting and broken world because that makes all the difference if we know why we're doing what we're doing. So to answer that, that's why I want to look at Luke chapter 10. So again, if you want to open your Bible to Luke chapter 10, uh, and we're looking at this passage, and it's incredibly familiar uh, to many of us. 
Uh, even folks who have never stepped foot in a church uh, are familiar, many are familiar with the story or the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and so there's good things about that, right? And there's difficult things about that. One of the challenging things about that is when we look at a parable like this, we can think, oh, I, I, I kind of got it figured out. already." No, it's so familiar, right? It can be kind of hard to really engage. So I just want to invite us to maybe re-engage with this parable, even if it's incredibly familiar to us, because often what happens is this parable gets presented out of context. Right? It gets presented out of context. So before we get to the parable, I want to take a few minutes and just ask, okay, what is happening here in Luke chapter 10? So that's why it's important for you to have your Bible open in front of you so you can follow along. What's happening here? So in Luke chapter 10, before we get uh, to kind of the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, what we find is there is this young lawyer. Now, in, in, in the scriptures here, lawyer is referring to, in particular, a, a, Christ, or a, sorry, a religious lawyer. This is someone who knows God's law through and through, an expert right, in the Torah. That's what it means that he's a lawyer. So this young Jewish lawyer comes, and what's he doing? He's putting Jesus to the test. That's what he's doing. He's putting Jesus to the test. He's an expert. He knows the law, and he's come, and he thinks, I know, but I want to see if this new rabbi named Jesus, does he really know his stuff? So I'm going to put him to the test. At this point, Jesus in his ministry, he's become a well-known rabbi, a teacher. Uh, uh, and so this, this cocky young guy kind of strolls up to Jesus, and he's going to say, I'm going to see if I can trip Jesus up with a question. And so this is what he says, verse 25, teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, on the face of it, man, that seems like a deep question, right? Profound question. I love Kenneth Bailey and his commentary on this. He uses an S word that we don't use with my kids in our house, the ST word, uh, just to put you at ease. Foolish. Let's call it a foolish question because uh, I can't say the other word. I get in trouble with my kids. It's a foolish question, uh, if you really think about it. Some of y'all got nervous when I said the S word. I'm like, not that S word. <laughs> it's a foolish question. It's a foolish question. Here's why. Think about it for just a second. What can I do to inherit eternal life? What can I do? What is an inheritance? It's a gift. It's a gift. If I came to you and I said, hey, what can I do to have your house when you die? right? That's a foolish question. The way you receive that gift is by being in the family or adopted into the family, right? In this case, the family of God. It's, it's a gift. You don't do anything in the, in the sense of doing something to earn it, in other words. And so this question, even though on the face of it, it seems like, wow, this is a deep, profound question. It's a foolish question. I think Kenneth Bailey's right when he says that. And so Jesus, he knows that. He recognizes this guy's arrogance, and he says, okay, smart guy, what, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What's your answer to your own question? And so, verse 27, the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Two parts, love God, love your neighbor. Now, what's interesting about his answer is that this is not uh, the popular answer in Jesus' day. This is not what rabbis taught at least they didn't, they didn't phrase it this way. It was something akin, but it wasn't this in particular. What rabbis in Jesus, they taught, was basically some version of the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Don't do things that you wouldn't want done to you to other people. It was some version of that. And so the question is, well, where did this lawyer get this answer? And what's interesting is some commentators think that he actually got it from Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus has been walking around saying in his teaching, that this is how you can sum up the law. And so what's happening here is this clever lawyer has come to trip up Jesus. He asked him a question. Jesus asked him a question back. And now this guy's quoting Jesus back to himself. I mean, that's, what, that's the dynamic here. And so you, you get this sense of, man, this guy is so full of himself, right? What's interesting in it is this answer itself in the Torah, the law, the, the books of Moses. If you were just to read through it, you would encounter these two things, but not in this order. It's very interesting. The order is reversed. Love your neighbor comes in Leviticus. Love your God with all that you are comes later in Deuteronomy. And so usually... If you were quoting something like this, you would have summed up, you would have quoted in order. That's just kind of common sense. You would have done that. But Jesus doesn't do that. And this guy quoting him back to himself doesn't do that. So why? Why would Jesus change the order? I think Jesus seems to be teaching uh, something very important about God. He seems to be teaching that uh, loving God is actually a preeminent importance. It's a prerequisite to actually loving God your neighbor, to being able to love your neighbor. I think this is so important. There's a lot of talk in our culture right now around the idea of justice, right? You hear this this thrown around, social justice issues. And people mean different things when they start talking about justice and social justice. And I think there's a big difference between what our culture is calling social justice or justice and what the Bible teaches is justice. Now, I want to set that aside for a minute because I'm not, I'm not looking to tackle that, but I want to be clear about that. What I think is interesting is over the past year, the primary expressions across the board in our culture um, of, of concerns for justice, in my opinion, have had a lot more to do with things like tweeting and marching and yelling than actually loving your neighbor. Even in the church, I would say, commitments to true biblical justice and actually sustained Christ-like compassion have seemed to be difficult to sustain, right? I think there's moments that we in the church have gotten it right. And I think there's genuine effort on, the, on behalf of some in our culture. They really are trying to do what is right, what, the right thing. They're, they're holding it as a conviction. But he, here's, here's what I think, here, there's a problem right in there that's going on and the way that this is expressing itself. And I think there's a reason, there's at least one reason for the way that this is kind of working out where it's a lot of words but not a lot of actions when it comes to loving your neighbor. And here's the reason. I think it's the truth that no one wants to admit that loving people is great. It's a great idea until you discover what people are like. Right? People can be really hard to love. Yeah, are. Yeah, people are really hard to love. It's hard enough to love the people that you like. Your own friends, your own family. I mean, really love them well. And so loving strangers is hard. And so the truth is, if you go out into the world because you think the world is in need, 
Right? If that's your primary motivation, you'll quickly discover the world is not a benevolent place full of benevolent people. It is a mixed bag because we're all a mixed bag because we're all broken. People are hard to love. People don't always respond to your love the way you want them to. They take advantage. They, they, they can deceive. They don't change the way that you want them to or as fast as you want them to. They have different expectations right, than you do. And so that's why people give up. That's why people talk a big game but don't do a lot. And it's part of the reason. I was reading something in an article this week just talking about social workers have the highest rate of burnout of almost any profession. No wonder helping broken, needy people, really helping them is really hard. It's really, really hard. Helping people through hard things is costly. And I don't care if it's your wealthy neighbor or if it's your poor neighbor. To really care about your neighbor, to really love them is hard. It's hard to sustain. And Jesus knows that. That's why Jesus changes the order. He changes the order. He says you can't start with loving people because you can't sustain it on your own. You can't actually do it. You'll burn out. You'll give up. You can't do it. But if we open ourselves up to the love of God, then God's love actually fills us, flows through us, to us, and to our neighbor. That's how God's love works. That's why it begins with God's love. It's a love sustained not only by altruistic human motive, but by divine love. Love God with all that you are. And God's love for you and for others will fill you and overflow out of you. 1 John 4, 19 puts it simply and beautifully. We love, why? Because he first loved us. That's how we can love others. Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. So back to verse 27. The lawyer here, he's parroting these words, these incredible words, this teaching of Jesus. He doesn't have a clue what it means, but he's parroting it back to Jesus. He doesn't get it. So Jesus says, well, okay, I'm glad you've been listening, right? I'm glad you've heard these words, but let's kind of, let's keep pressing in. So Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Love God with all you are and love your neighbor. Do this and you will live. In other words, you'll have what you're after, eternal life with God. Now, let's just pause right there. Is Jesus saying that you can earn your salvation? Now, our gut, if we've been following Jesus long enough, says, no, that can't be right. That's not the gospel. But it sure sounds like that. If you just read this or just encountered this, Jesus says, look, you've answered correctly. Love God, love your neighbor. If you do that, you're good to go. Right? Yes. So is Jesus saying you can earn your salvation? The answer here is yes. He's saying yes, you can. You can earn your salvation. You can make yourself right with God if you can meet this standard. Big if. If you can meet this standard. If it, at all times and all places you can love God with all that you are and you can love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. If you can do that, it's that simple. Yeah, do this and you'll inherit eternal life with God. Jesus is so funny. I mean, he, I mean, it's just his wit is amazing to me. He, he's, just, he's, he's trying to get this guy to pay attention to himself, to realize what he's actually saying and thinking and a asking Jesus. Here's a, here's a question. Can you go for the next week loving God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength? Can you do that for one week? Okay. Can you do that for one day? Okay. Can you do that for one hour? This morning, I drove here uh, early. It was in the dark. No other cars on the road. 
I'm just saying this by way of confession. This guy got on, the, on, on Yale behind me, tailgated me for six blocks. No other car on the road. He's like bumper to bumper, like on me. And I can just tell you, I did not love that guy. <laughs> I did not love him as I love myself. <laughs> See, God, the law that he gave, the law that he gave, this law that's been quoted now from Jesus is good. It's a good law. The problem is not the law. The problem is that we can't keep the law. We can't keep it. And so Jesus, he sets this standard. You know, it, it, it's almost as if, I was thinking about this, uh, it, it, if, if Jesus said, look, you can have $100 million. I'll give you $100 million. All you have to do to get it is jump up and touch, touch the top of the J.P. Morgan Chase building in downtown Houston. That's all you got to do. Just jump up there. It's 1,000 feet. Just jump up and touch it. I'll give you $100 million right now. That's all you have to do. That's basically what Jesus is saying. When, yeah, you got it right. Just do it. He's trying to drive home the point, and the lawyer's not getting it. He's missing the point. So what does he do? He does, he, he, he does the only thing he knows how to do. He doubles down. He doubles down. He says, okay, I'm just going to keep, I'm going to keep pushing in, right? I give him credit for that. He didn't just walk away. He presses in, and then this is what it says, verse 29. Look at verse 29. Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, interestingly, he doesn't ask about the God part. In his arrogance, he thinks, I got that down. I know how to love God. I'm, I'm a holy, holy person. I'm set apart. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a devout religious Jew. I know all those rules. But I want to know about this piece. I want some clarity about who is my neighbor. I just need some clarity there, Jesus. Can you kind of help me out? Now, as a devout Jew, he would have been thinking that this list Jesus is going to give him is going to be pretty short. Pretty short list of neighbors. In Jesus' day, devout religious Jews would not have included certain kinds of people in a list of neighbors as the Bible defined neighbors. They would have excluded, for example, all Gentiles. No Gentiles. Non-Jews are not considered the neighbor of a Jew. Like, likewise, mixed ethnicity. So, uh, so um, Samaritans. Right, that we encounter here, who are only part Jewish, not my neighbor. Uh, and then even Jews, right, within, within the covenant community, who, who are sinners, right? So when Jesus encounters in the gospel sinners, when he's hanging out with sinners, that's what it's talking about, people who are not living according to the Torah. They're not being faithful to the covenant commands of God. And so those people, they don't count as my neighbor. And so he's got this mindset. So He's asking, who's my neighbor? Because why? He wants to justify himself. What does that mean? He wants to justify himself. He still hasn't figured out what Jesus is saying. He wants to make sure he has what it takes to have salvation and to inherit eternal life. So Jesus, just give me the checklist. Tell me what I have to do to be right with God. That's what he's asking. And so Jesus, Jesus in his infinite patience with this man and his love for this man, he doesn't just give up. He says, let me... Let's try a different tack. Let me tell you a story. And this is the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's important that we understand when Jesus tells the story because it's responding to this question, who is my neighbor? So let's look at what Jesus says. Verse 30, he says, here's the story. He says, there was a guy, this man, he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. He stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So first, this man's traveling. 
He's traveling on a treacherous stretch of road, 17-mile road through the wilderness between the cities of Jerusalem and Jericho. Um, and along this road in the wilderness, essentially, someone's robbed him, right? Someone's taken everything, even his clothes, and, and, and they've just left him half dead. That means unconscious. That's what that means. He, he, he's not conscious. He's laying there on the side of the road. Now, one of the reasons all of this is important is because it means there's no easy way to identify this man. Right, so just think about the question, who is my neighbor? All the categories that this man would have had depend on him knowing who, who, who is this guy to know if he's my neighbor. Right? And there's nothing here that's telling him who this person is. He can't speak, so I can't hear his, his, his language, his dialect. I can't see clothes, like people's clothes in Jesus' day clued you into where they were from, even, even down to like the village sometimes, from dialect and style. You could tell where someone was from. He can't tell if this person, what kind of person this is. And so identifying this man is next to impossible. And so the other thing that means in the story, like this man is essentially, he's, he's every man. He's every person. Right? He is, he's the universal neighbor, you could say, in Jesus' story. He represents more than just himself. And so then what happens next? Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest. Man, Jesus is not messing around. A priest. Okay, well, you're thinking, surely this guy. Like, he's, he's, he's a priest. He's going down the road. And when he saw this man, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He passed by on the other side. A priest. This priest, to make it worse, is coming from Jerusalem. You know what he's been doing in Jerusalem? He's been leading God's people in worship. Every, every priest in Israel would have served on a rotation. So he just spent a two-week rotation serving among the people of God in the presence of God, worshiping and leading worship, ministering to God's people, and he comes along this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, many of the priests who served there, this would have been common. There would have been many priests going back and forth on this road. Many lived in Jericho, and they would make this trip back and forth to Jerusalem. So this priest was coming by this man, and as he passes by, he goes to the other side of the road, and he doesn't help this man. So this man, too, is a representative, right? In the same way that the, the, the man on the side of the road is representative, this priest is representative of a religious system, Right, a system that is about to be tested here on the road to Jericho. And so what is the test? On the road, he finds this unconscious man who's been robbed, and he's immediately faced with a series of choices. If he's certain he's a Jew, then he has to help him. Okay, so if he's certain he's a Jew, he pretty much has to help him based on the Torah. Jewish law would clearly define neighbor to include a fellow Jew. So if that's all he knows, then he must help. Um, and what's that saying? If he's one of us, then I'll help him. If he's not one of us, I won't help him, right? Wow, define human relations in the history of the world. If he's one of us, I'll help him. If you're not, I don't want to help you. So that's, his, that's one of the, the decisions he's making. Is this, is this man a Jew? But let's say he can't tell. So what if he's not one of us? Well, then doesn't that mean he's not my neighbor? And so... Now he's got another problem. If a faithful Jew gets too close to a dead body or to even to a living Gentile, for example, this man might be, he becomes defiled, ceremonially unclean, a big no-no, right, for a devout Jew. And it would have required him to jump through all kinds of hoops. It would have cost him and his family both time and money to help this guy. 
Now, that sounds strange to us. I don't get that. What's the big deal? Like, it can't, why can't you just help this guy out? So imagine, so just to help us kind of get into this world, right? First century Jew. Imagine on the way home today, you encounter someone who needs help. And helping them isn't just helping them. What it's going to mean is you're going to have to miss work for at least two to three weeks and all your salary is going to have to go for the next two to three weeks to help this person. That's the level at which this guy is trying to sort through this. Okay, so it's not just, ah, give him a Band-Aid and keep going, right? This is, about, this is about the demands upon this man's time and money. And so, in other words, what this priest is weighing is the cost, the cost of helping this man and determines that not only, this is, this is what's interesting, not only would it be too costly but that actually, as he weighs it out, the right thing to do for himself and his family, see how this works? The right thing to do for him and his family, and maybe even his village, right? As he's a priest, I got responsibilities. The right thing to do is to not help and to walk on the other side of the road. That's what happens. What's interesting is Jesus says, okay, now a Levite comes. And Jesus does, I mean, he basically says, the Levite does the same thing. In other words, the Levite's kind of like an assistant priest. So Jesus is just making sure this is really clear, okay? The priest doesn't do anything. And it's not just the priestly order. It's the Levites, too. It's everybody. It's the whole system. They're all doing the same thing. They're thinking wrongly about this. And so Jesus is driving home the point. This is what this religious system is, is actually incapable of doing. It can't actually help a man dying on the side of the road. And then comes a Samaritan. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So first, we have to understand that everyone around Jesus is a, is a Jew. He is speaking to a Jewish audience, and not only that, the person who's questioning him is a Jewish lawyer, a devout Jew. And the other thing we have to understand is that Jews detested Samaritans, and Samaritans detested Jews. It went both ways. And for reasons we're not going to get into, this, this, this hatred was deep. This wasn't superficial. This was deep. This had been going on for over five years hundred years, this detesting of each other in Jesus' day. And so to get your head around what Jesus is doing here, we have to understand those two pieces of context. Because when Jesus says, along came a Samaritan, and when Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero, this is scandalous. This is absolutely scandalous. So just to help us kind of get in touch with how scandalous this would be, so let's imagine you're traveling around right now and you're speaking to different groups of Americans and different rallies and you want to tell this story, the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, we got, we got refugees coming. We, need, we got people that need help in Haiti. We got you know, hurricanes hitting. We, here's a great, let me tell you a little story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. And you were to tell this story. The way you would tell this story is that you would say, hey, you know, this kind American was walking down the road and, and then he came across this Afghan refugee and he stopped and he helped him. That's how you would tell this story. The story you would not tell, for example, would be, hey, there was a, a man walking down the road, and he was a member of ISIS-K, or the Taliban, and he helped this poor American on the side of the road. 
you wouldn't tell that story. You can't take the enemy of the audience and make them the hero. You can't do that. But that's exactly what Jesus does. And people didn't like it. We don't like it. I don't even like saying things like that. It makes me uncomfortable. And it made people around Jesus uncomfortable. So what is Jesus doing? Why is he saying this? Is he just trying to offend them? Is he just trying to stir things up and get lots of people upset with him? Is he just saying, hey, just be a good Samaritan? I bet you good money every person in this room has ever heard a sermon on this has heard that sermon. Just be a good person. Is that what Jesus is getting at? That can't be the point if he makes the Samaritan the hero. Interesting, in the early church, followers of Jesus didn't think any of those things made sense either. The early church fathers and mothers believed that this parable was actually about Jesus himself. That this is Jesus explaining himself and his mission into the world. That's how they understood the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus here is trying to make a radical and profound point by pointing to himself as the hero in the story. He is the true Good Samaritan. In other words, the key to understanding the story, to understanding what it means to have eternal life, which is the question that we began with, is to see who Jesus really is and to see that Jesus is the true Good Samaritan. Think about what the Samaritan does. Look at verse 33. It says, when he came to where he was and when he saw him, the Samaritan had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. Remember, this is a Samaritan in Jewish country, the way the story's set up. This is a Samaritan. He's not in Samaria. He's, he's on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, right? And he, he, he's... He's having to deal with all that that meant for himself in a, in a world where there's animosity and hatred towards him, right? And so in this Jewish religious system that's failed this man, where does help come from? It comes from outside, from a far country. It's another who comes in into this system to help. He draws near to this broken half-dead man. He tends his wounds. He picks him up. And he takes him to the inn of a Jewish town, more than likely, where he himself is hated. And he cares for him at great personal expense. This Samaritan saves this man's life. Isn't that what Jesus does? Isn't that what Jesus has done for me? Isn't that what Jesus has done for you? Isn't this the gospel? That Jesus himself came into the world to seek and save the lost. I love Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. This is what it says. And I think if you hold this up next to the, the story of the Good Samaritan, it gives you a glimpse into the heart of Jesus as he's telling this story. This is what Romans 5, 6 through 8 says. It says, for while we were still weak. In other words, while we've been beaten down by life. While we laid helpless and hopeless on the side of life's road. 
while we've been left for dead by evil and sin. That was us. That's all of us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, who came along? Who came down the road? At the right time, Christ, the good Samaritan, came from far off. He drew near to us. And what does he do? He makes the greatest sacrifice anyone could make. He dies for the ungodly. Paul continues in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for you and he died for me. That's what the story of the Good Samaritan is all about. This is the kind of love God loves us with. God's love for you and me demonstrated in his son on the cross. If you want life, eternal life, if you want to inherit life in God forever, set aside your efforts to be a good person. Set them aside. You'll never be good enough. But the good news is if you set that aside and you believe in Jesus, the true good Samaritan, then he's come to save you. And he can save you. At the end of the story, Jesus asks his own question. This is how he wraps things up. He says to this lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. That's a confession of Jesus whether he realizes it or not. And so Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. Is this a story about radical love for one's neighbor? It is. It's a radical love for our neighbors. But it's also, more importantly, a story that tells us about the radical self-giving love that's possible because of the radical self-giving love of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't tell us to be good Samaritans, to be good people doing good things in the world. He says, I'm the good Samaritan, and I love you with a mercy and a sacrifice and an unexpected love. Now you go and do likewise. Amen. Amen.